Great God and Heavenly Father, please do work in us. Please work in us love which abounds more and more with knowledge and total clarity about what's good. So that we would know and choose what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. To your glory and praise as the one who works it. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. What is genuinely other person centred love look like? What does it mean to consider the interests of others above our own? Does it mean being soft? Does it mean putting their comfort and convenience, their safety and security, their pleasure and prestige above our own? What does a head and heart tuned to the eternal realities change the way we see the situation that we're in such that we see what others might miss? In the complexity of life and with all the options available, how can we possibly know and choose what is best? Well, in this little passage, Paul tells us how he thought about the situation God placed him in. He brings us inside his decision-making process. He shows us a little of what it's like to live with a love which sees reality. Which has total clarity about what's good. Which has been taught by God to choose what is excellent. Paul tells us Christ's gospel is going to more and more people. Verse 12, Paul mentions what's happened to him. Uh, what's happened is that he's in chains. Uh, the Philippians knew uh, what he was talking about. Two years of captivity in Caesarea, north of Jerusalem. And now transported to Rome for a trial before Caesar's court. And held in chains until the day when Caesar would decide to release him or to execute him. Whatever pain he felt from his two or three or four year lockdown... Whatever regrets he had about opportunities missed. He wants the men and women and children of Philippi to know that what's happened to him has served to advance the gospel. So how is Paul in prison or under house arrest, how is that connected to more people hearing the gospel? Well, he tells us. People are telling his story and believers are more courageous to tell the gospel. Verse 13, the imperial guard, Caesar's guard, and all the rest know his imprisonment is for Christ. Ironically, Paul's chains for the gospel have set the gospel free among his captors. Every four hours or so, a new guard arrives. It's easy to imagine how the conversation went. Uh, Paul asking, have you heard about Jesus? Uh, Can I tell you how I went from opposing him to being convinced that he is the Christ and she ain't here because I preach him. And then the same soldier, uh, maybe back on, on duty again later. Do you remember what we spoke about last time? However far Paul got in those conversations, the soldiers left with a story to tell about their prisoner. Not the usual background noise story about guarding a murderer or a revolutionary. The prisoner I guarded today, uh, he hasn't done a violent crime. He hasn't spoken against the emperor. He's a Jew and a Roman citizen. 
And he made it his mission to tell people about a Jew called Jesus who was crucified outside Jerusalem. And he says then he was raised to life. He's chosen to stay in chains rather than deny Jesus. He says Jesus will judge us after our deaths. And the only way to expect an eternal welcome then is to trust Jesus now. Paul's story has spread so much that it spread through 9,000 troops and all the rest, which probably means all the rest of Caesar's household. More and more people know. They know he's chosen to stay in chains rather than deny Jesus. And he'd rather die than give up on Jesus. At the very least, they know he thinks Jesus is worth it. With a little explanation, they know Paul thinks judgment is coming and Jesus can set them free from it. The gospel is going forward. It's been heard by more people. It's been heard by thousands of the lost. And it's being spoken by hundreds, maybe thousands of believers. Verse 14. With Paul and chains, more people are hearing the gospel because believers are more courageous. Their courage comes uh, from being more confident in the Lord. And we see how that happened. Seeing Paul imprisoned makes them more confident that the gospel is true, that the Lord Jesus is who they need, that the Jesus is who everyone else needs. It's nice sometimes to hear about how our brothers and sisters have spoken for Jesus and nothing happened to them. Their friends say, thanks. And we think to ourselves, it's okay, maybe nothing will happen to me either. But it's deeply challenging to hear how brothers and sisters have spoken up for Jesus when they knew something terrible could happen to them. A century and a half ago, the Scotsman John Patton was planning to go as a missionary to some islands in the South Pacific. Uh, He was warned uh, by someone in church with him, uh, you will be eaten by cannibals. He replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect, your own future, is soon to be laid in the grave and there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honouring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body shall arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. It's so helpful to hear. It's so helpful to hear Paul's story and the stories of brothers and sisters who have risked and sometimes lost what they could not keep to gain what they cannot lose. What happened uh, to Paul has helped heaps of believers to be more courageous uh, speakers of the gospel. Though, as Paul says in verse 15, some with mixed motives. 
Uh, verse 15, some preached with envy and rivalry. Verse 17, they spoke out of selfish ambition, aiming to afflict Paul. Either they reckon that them preaching is going to result, more likely result in Paul being condemned, or they just think that Paul the preacher will be incredibly frustrated when he hears that they're preaching to the lost and he can't. But Paul doesn't care why these preachers preach. Doesn't care who they are or why. They're fighting the same battle on the same side. So if they throw themselves in with greater, um, greater effort, well, Paul thinks that's great. He has a very different attitude to false gospel preaching. Uh, false gospel, he wants silenced in church and corrected in the world. He wants it corrected and silenced because a false gospel doesn't save. It might even be a lure that, that brings uh, those who are saved away from the Savior. When a false gospel is proclaimed, Paul fights. But when the true gospel is proclaimed by people who want uh, the reputation of being preachers, or who think Paul will be frustrated that, it, that it's them, not him, well, Paul rejoices. He's like a marketing executive. He's been held for questioning about the claims that he's made about his company's COVID cure, which he knows works and has seen work. He's cut off from social media and news outlets, but he hears that other marketers are promoting the cure. Some of them are even saying that they're way better marketers than he is. He knows he'll get zero credit for new customers and new people cured, but he doesn't care. He doesn't care if he gets no credit, and he doesn't care if they're doing it from mixed motives. He just wants as many people as possible to get the cure because the cure works. Paul just wants as many people as possible to hear about Jesus because Jesus forgives. He wants them to hear about it for their eternal good and Jesus' glory. Now, he's not the only one with pure motives. Verse 15, some preach Christ out of goodwill. Verse 16, out of love. They love the Lord Jesus and want to make him known. They love the people they preach to and want them to find forgiveness. Perhaps they even they love Paul and they realize that getting in alongside and doing the same work he would have done uh, would be an encouragement to him. Paul is pleased to hear that they're, what they're doing and why they're doing it. Motives do matter. But what matters most what matters most is whether the gospel is going to more and more people. So in verse 18, even though he is in change and some of the Christian evangelists have mixed motives, Paul rejoices because the gospel is going to more and more people. No matter the motivations, no matter who speaks the good news of rescuing Jesus, when it is spoken, Paul rejoices. When he sees how his imprisonment has resulted in people telling uh, his story in a way which points to Jesus' greatness and glory. In believers being more courageous to speak the gospel, he rejoices. It shows his heart, doesn't it? It shows what he cares about. He doesn't preach to be a preacher. He doesn't evangelize to take a box. He sees himself as a means to an end. And if him being chained means the gospel is unchained on the lips of more and more people, he is happy. That's what matters to Paul. That's what matters to God. 
Yes, change matter. Uh, suffering is real. And th- th- there would be more opportunities to serve the gospel if he was free. And yes, motives matter. Selfish ambition is is a bad fit with following the Lord who humbled himself. But whatever else, if the gospel is going to more people, that's a reason to rejoice. I think that's here is also a reason to rethink. It's a reason to rethink our priorities and goals. Paul tells the Philippians and us to remind us what matters. Lots of things matter. Lots of things are worth investing in. But if reality and eternity are what God says they are, if the cross of Christ is his best act of love for us, if God will bring everything and everyone under Christ, if life is short and eternity holds either the horror of hell or the delight of heaven, if God is worthy of our love and love for others points them to Jesus who gives life and forgiveness, then what matters most is whether Christ is proclaimed. What are your priorities and goals? What do you want your uh, family and friends to remember about you when you're dead? What do you want to have done in 10 years' time? What's pushed other things out during this last week? Lots of things matter. Lots of things should matter to us. But what matters most? What should matter most? Some things should be central. They, They deserve to be central. And something's wrong when they aren't. Something's wrong if they're pushed out by something which really should have a lower priority, should be further down the list. Paul knew that personal comfort, even personal fulfillment, don't belong at the centre. And the gospel getting out does. In some sense, everything we do has eternal significance. Uh, any, any of it could be something that our eternal father has in mind when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Not much of it, though. Not much of it will have God pointing to people we share our eternal home with and saying, he's here and, and so she. He's here, and so is she, because I turned their hearts and kept them faithful in response to your prayers as you and others spoke the gospel to them. The reason for these days is that the gospel may be preached. Our Father's plan and purpose is to bring men, women, and children to himself. We might have all manner of priorities and there are lots of things that should be amongst them. But none of them should eat up our time and prayers and passion to, so there's little left for sharing the gospel. When we see reality and eternity as God speaks them to us, the cross of Christ as his, his best act of love, the brevity of love, uh, of life, uh, the, Everyone's eternity as either the horror of hell or the delight of heaven. 
God is worthy of our love and love for others as pointing them to Jesus. When we see reality and eternity, whatever the situation, what matters most in it is whether Christ is proclaimed. As Paul rejoices, because Christ has been being proclaimed, the first half of verse uh, verse 18 is Paul rejoicing in that what has been happening. The second half of verse 18, he says he will keep rejoicing. He'll keep rejoicing out into the future. And verses 19 to 21 tell us why he'll keep rejoicing. It's because whether he lives or dies, Christ will be honoured. Look at verses 19 and 20. Paul describes a win-win situation. A win-win perspective on his trial. Through their prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, He expects his situation to turn out for his deliverance. Life or death, later or sooner, Jesus will bring him safely home. He expects deliverance at his trial, deliverance from bending under the threat of death, deliverance from dishonoring his Lord and shaming the gospel. He He won't bend. He won't bend because God hears and answers prayers they have been praying for Paul. He won't compromise because the same spirit who, who strengthened the Lord Jesus when he went to the cross is at work in him. He will stand because of how God has taught him to see his life and death. Verse 21. To him, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Being alive is all about Jesus and dying is getting what's better. God has taught him to say that living longer is an opportunity to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and to see death as entering his eternal presence. So yes, he expects to stand firm at his trial. He builds out and expands on that in verses 26, 22 to 26. He expands his perspective on being alive and on going to death. Life and death both have benefits. Living longer or dying sooner sits side by side for Paul. He's happy either way. He speaks as if uh, he's weighing up which one he'll choose. He's not quite sure, as if he's not quite sure which. Now, it's not that he's in a hopeless situation uh, or that he's considering self-destruction. He's talking about how he sees life and death to help us. To help us see what it meant for him to look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Will he choose to be released and live longer, or to be condemned and executed? Both have benefits. Have a look, verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. You hear how he's talking it out? To live is Christ. To continue alive 
is to live for his plans and purposes. Serving Jesus is at the very purpose of his life. Living is doing, living is for doing what pleases Christ. Jesus is the object, uh, the motive, the goal of his life. And if he continues on alive after his trial, it will mean fruitful labor. It will mean useful gospel work. And Paul thinks that's great. <coughs> but the alternative to continuing alive is great too. If he's condemned and executed, he will go to be with Christ. And that is far better. Far better for him. Uh, death is gain when death is going to be with Christ. It's not the dying Paul looks, looks forward to. Dying is dreadful. But the other side of death holds no terror for him. He knows God has already forgiven him. He knows he won't be judged. He knows he'll leave behind crying and dying, pain and shame. He'll leave behind sin and struggles in the pursuit of holiness. But what he looks forward to is seeing his Savior, being with the Lord Jesus. That's what's better, being with Jesus. When our heads and hearts are tuned to the goodness of those eternal realities, we can say life after as better. Better than longer life here. I love the way Adonarim Judson, the missionary to Burma, put it. He said, I, I'm not tired of my work, neither am I tired of the world. Yet when Christ calls me home, I shall go with the gladness of a schoolboy binding away from school. What a great picture of realizing how good what he's going to is. Useful gospel work in life with Christ in death. Life and death both have their benefits. And for the person experiencing it, life after with Christ is much better than longer life. To die really is gain. But Paul isn't finished. He isn't finished describing the benefits of life and death. Him dying is better for him. Him living is better for them. And he's learned from Jesus not to look to his own benefit, but also to the benefit of others. Verse 24, useful gospel work is more necessary on their account. It's better for them if he lives and does gospel work among them. It's better for them if he remains and continues for their progress and joy in the faith. And that decides it. Living longer in order to serve them longer is better. It's what he desires. So that's what he's praying for. And his expectation in verse 26 is for God to overrule such that the result of his trial is that he'll be released and live longer. Not because God is on his side or because God loves him or because he has a good prayer life. He expects to see them again precisely because God has more gospel work for him to do. He expects them to glory in what Christ Jesus continues to do through him as he serves them with the gospel. <coughs> the next verse, uh, verse 27, we'll pick up next week. 
Uh, it says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul's been preparing us for that line. Next week, uh, we'll look at that section which climaxes in seeing Christ himself as our pattern for self-sacrifice in service to others. But Paul also, Paul is a model of what it means to follow our Lord in sacrificial service. It's not primarily about being willing to die in defense and confirmation of the gospel. It is being determined to live for the benefit of others. That's Paul's filter. He can rejoice while he is chained up, uh, waiting for trial, uh, which could well result in execution, because he sees how his chains are resulting in the gospel going to more people. More people speaking it, and more people hearing it. Puts a different spin on how we see our situations. But this passage, I think, is primarily, it helps us with seeing our situations and with making decisions. Not just the life and death ones. See, what tips your Monday to Sunday decisions? At work, at school, at home. What makes you, tips your decisions about how to spend your social time? Uh, about what to bring up in conversation or what to leave out? The default desire can be to do what's best for my comfort and convenience. My safety and security, my pleasure and prestige. But as God works love in us, love which can recognize and choose what's good and best, well, our desires and decisions will be more and more to do what's best for others. Particularly what's eternally best for others. Ask him to work it in us. Slow down to see how he's worked it in others and be encouraged by what he has worked in them that he may work it in you. Slow down to think through the big picture of how you're spending your life and the day-to-day details of Monday to Sunday. Let's pray. A great God and Heavenly Father, uh, please do work love in us, that love which does abound more and more with knowledge, uh, that love which has total clarity about what's good, having learned it from your word. So that we'd know what's excellent and choose what's excellent. So that more and more we'll live pure and blameless lives while we await the day we'll see our Saviour. Please fill us with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. To your glory and praise as the one who works it. We ask it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.